Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. It gives me really great pleasure to talk to one of my colleagues, Dr. Rashbal Gatora, about all things altitude and adventure medicine today. Welcome, Rashbal. Many thanks for inviting me, James. Oh, it's really great to have you. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in um, altitude medicine and expeditions. Well, James, uh, first of all, there's always a uh, caveat or a, uh, a, a, a proviso here that uh, I don't claim to be an expert. Okay, so that's the important thing. So I developed an interest uh, many, many years ago where um, I uh, used to support, um, as a volunteer, uh, various organizations uh, who would take, uh, in terms of charity trips, I'd be the, the medic on the trip. And over a period of time, I've kind of learned on the job, if I was to be completely honest with you. And, uh, and then in between that, I thought I better do some proper courses. So I ended up doing some of the expedition medicine courses, which I thought was really useful. And then I, I remember going to Wales and doing this four-day altitude medicine course, which I thought was fascinating in terms of learning the, uh, the science behind it, yeah. evidence base behind it. And then uh, I also did a bit of the pre-hospital trauma course, I thought. So I thought as a collection of courses and experience, I thought that was quite, it gave me a bit of a foundation. But the rest has basically been learning on the job. And over a period of time, I've supported various charities and uh, more recently, uh, trips to Tibet. Brilliant. Well, it sounds really interesting. We're going to explore a bit of your experiences a bit later on there. And of course, as GPs, we'll sometimes be asked about altitude medicine, trips of a lifetime, trips to Kilimanjaro uh, with students. And you work at the university practice, so I suspect that comes up you know, not not infrequently. Yeah, that, that's one of those sort of common scenarios. Sometimes you can say, it's, it, is it your worst nightmare? Oh my gosh, what am I, what am I going to do? You've got a student who's about to travel to Kilimanjaro and they're, they're, they've, they've gone online and they said that they need some Dymox or they need some, they, they, they need some advice. So that's often the platform that we often start with, yeah. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really nice place to start with our discussion today. So let's, let's look at it from a clinical point of view. Let's use a case study. So a patient comes to you and says, right, I'm thinking about going to Kilimanjaro. It's the holiday of a lifetime. What do you think? Can you give me any advice? So, James, the first question I often ask is, um, tell me about your trip. Okay, tell me how long your trip is, yes, and whether you're, there's acclimatization days built into that trip. And that's really important, isn't it? Because it's, it's quite high, it's 5,800 meters. We know that when, we, when it comes to altitude medicine, anything above 2,400 meters, we start to worry. So, so as a GP, I'm thinking, look, I want to make sure uh, our patient is aware of the potential risk. And that the trip is organized in a way that the organizers have planned uh, appropriate days for acclimatization. That way, in a way that makes my job a lot easier because I probably don't need to do much because the trip is organized in a way which is relatively safe for the patient. And when, when you and I had a conversation, and the reason that I found out about this interest is came up in conversation and I was on my way to Nepal and Everest. And the first thing that we did was like, where are you day one? How high are you? Where are you day two? How high are you? We, we looked at that yeah. and that rate of ascension yeah. um, and the rest days that we had that were built in, which was, again, sounds really important. And this is, I suppose the basic principle is that with a proper organized tour, there should be opportunity for you to ascend gradually, for you to rest and for you to acclimatize in a slow, gradual way. Mm. Uh, sometimes 
you find that because of cost or because of time pressures, uh, people tend to book tours which are a bit more compressed. And then there is a danger. Now, so the first question I'd be asking of this patient, for example, would be to say, how long is your trip? Or have you got some rest days booked in or not? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I understand that comes up quite commonly with Kilimanjaro because you pay for each day that you're there and there are length of time between five days to eight or even nine days. What difference does that make to a, a person's experience? I, th- I think it makes a huge difference. So I would say that... Um, the shorter trips put them at a much higher risk of developing altitude sickness because it leaves less time for that individual to acclimatize. And uh, I remember when I um, went to Kilimanjaro and I was supporting a group of um, a charity, then the, the, we, we would see the porters running down with trolleys uh, with patients, yes, in sleeping bags, yes, in a sort of semi, semi-comatose state, really, actually. So it does highlight the seriousness of the condition. So I suppose I would, I would start that discussion with the patient to say, are you aware of the potential risk? Yes. And if you have booked a short trip, are you aware of what those risks are and what steps you know, have they taken to mitigate against those risks? And I think that it also helps determine a person's success as well. And I, see, I seem to think of top of my head for five days of Kilimanjaro, it's something in the region of 60% will make it to the summit. And uh, for eight for eight days, it's more like 85, 90%. So hopefully they'd be aware of that. And of course, they're on, to, on top of the not managing to make it to the top, there is the potential serious risk of, of injury and, and, and death. You know, it can be, can be very dangerous. It is. I think Kilimanjaro is one of the highest death rates, actually. Yeah, yeah because unfortunately, I think people assume that uh, it's relatively straightforward and relatively easy, actually. And I think they often don't understand the seriousness of altitude sickness in its fullest context. So I suppose as a GP, so the the second question I'd be asking is, what do they understand about altitude illness? Mm. What, well, what should they understand? Yeah. What, what's the things that would be really important for us to convey to a person? Is it, so I suppose basic physiology probably is a, is a starting platform to say that yeah, as, we, as we get up, the atmospheric pressure goes, or the barometric pressure gets less. Although the percentage of oxygen is the same, there's less air molecules in 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 the space that you're breathing. So every time I'm breathing in, I'm breathing in less air molecules, which basically means there's less oxygen going to the body tissues, which basically means the body has to work a lot harder. Okay. Yeah. And so if I'm ascending quite rapidly, it means the body has to work tremendously hard. And the danger is it may reach a saturation point beyond which it starts to manifest abnormal symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we talk about symptoms which can be sort of like, you know, moving from a spectrum of, you know, experiencing mountain sickness to tablets, from headache to a bit of nausea, to a bit of dizziness, to loss of appetite, to more serious symptoms, which involve swelling of the brain, fluid in the lungs. So I, I think it's important to make them aware of what the what the what the potential risks are, and to make them aware that if they do experience these symptoms early on, it's really important to address those symptoms rather than ignoring those symptoms and continuing to ascend. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that risk of continuing to ascend, I think that's really important to convey to people because continuing to ascend is where people find it very dangerous, and of course we need to be encouraging them to descend. You know understand that that is the main way you treat altitude sickness. Yeah, I, I think you're right, James. So so 
let's say you let's say you, I think you mentioned when you went to was it South America yeah. uh, uh, Cusco yeah. yes and then you experienced some symptoms when you went to the altitude yeah. describe your symptoms yeah so um, I've fortunately been to South America a couple of times I, I went twice yeah. one time when I went up to La Paz I mean went up relatively slowly and then a bit more rapidly at the end I think La Paz is around like 3,800 meters I felt quite nauseous I felt quite annoyed and irritable at people around me um i did, didn't want to eat anything i just wanted to go to bed and sleep and that's very unlike me um however i did start to improve over the next day or two but the thing that really struck to me was that everything was a massive effort um, walking up a flight of stairs and four steps up i needed a break i had to stop i felt better i climbed another four or five steps and i had to stop and it and it was very unusual getting used to that um, and then the other time when we went into Cusco, we went from Lima to Cusco, so um, that, that, that is a, <laughs> a big jump there. The big impact I had was sleeping. Yeah. Um, and I found myself kind of felt like every breath was difficult. And I couldn't sleep on my front um, because I, that was just an additional uh, weight, I suppose, to try and expand my lungs. And that was really odd, but I acclimatized a lot quicker. Yeah. It's interesting the things that you're describing. I suppose the first lot of symptoms you could say is is classified as almost um, mountain sickness. Mountain mm. sickness uh, symptoms. So you've got you've described some headache, a bit of nausea, a bit of tiredness, a bit of loss of appetite, and uh, and so if we were to stay there as you as you as you rightfully did, yeah, staying at that altitude and let's say taking simple rest, rehydrating yourself, taking simple painkillers. And those symptoms subside after, say, a day or so, then you know that your body's acclimatizing to that, okay? So your body's saying, look, I'm working really hard at this level, yes? Give me some, give me some rest, okay? So listen to your body. I'm glad you listened to your body, yes? Uh, that nighttime symptoms, uh, the breathing is quite classical, actually, of um, when you're in high altitude, and that's called periodic breathing. Okay. So you have periods where you're breathing rate is quite fast, periods where your breathing rate is quite slow, and then periods where you breathe, where you stop breathing. And it can be quite frightening. Yes, yeah? some patients often will yeah, wake up in the middle of the night gasping for air, saying, I can't get enough air, I can't get enough air. And uh, so that is a form of acclimatization. And over hopefully a few days, that periodic breathing starts to improve. Uh, but uh, we, were, we haven't touched upon this, but if you were if you didn't have that period of rest and you were ascending quite rapidly, then certain medications such as azetazolamide, which is otherwise called as Dimox, can sometimes help with periodic breathing, can help with climatization. I'm sure we can cover that yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come on to a little bit about the medications because yeah. often that's what people expect yeah. um, to get when they go and have a consultation with their GP about um, altitude and treks and the like, whereas reality quite a lot of it seems to be more about the education and the discussion and making sure people understand what they're going into um, i just wanted to ask you a little bit about a word that's come up a few times which is acute mountain sickness what, what do we really mean by that so, uh, it's, in a way acute mountain sickness is a is where there is a delay in the acclimatization process yes and we describe some of the symptoms like headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, tiredness, which you could say are the early stages of acute mountain sickness. And in a way, there's a spectrum, yes? So if, we, if you address it quite early on, you may find that those symptoms of 
acute mountain sickness settle and they're absolutely fine. If you find that they're persistent, then it means that your body is struggling to acclimatize at that altitude that you are. And after 24 hours or 48 hours, if there's still no improvement, then it's advisable to descend because it's basically you have to listen to your body. Mm. The danger is that what may happen is that you sort of, you know, fight through those symptoms or you, you ignore those symptoms and then you start to get to the other spectrum of that disorder, which is, you know, things like high altitude cerebral edema or high altitude pulmonary So I would say that it's a spectrum of illness. Mm. And if we address it early with sensible measures, you can stop it from progressing. Sure. Okay, well, sorry, we mentioned sensible measures. What do you mean by that? What sort of things can we do to help improve that acclimatization process? And what things can we do to to help ease the symptoms, Juris? So I suppose if it's looking at non-pharmacological means, you're looking at making sure that you're adequately hydrated, yes, especially with electrolytes. You're making sure that the rate of ascent is such that it's in a... It's in a controlled way. I would be reluctant to be ascending more than 500 meters a day, for example, if you're experiencing uh, acute mountain sickness. I'd be making sure that I'm sleeping at a relatively low, you know, the, the phrase goes, you climb high, sleep low, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you want to make sure that that's all factored into your itinerary, yes, and that you have the opportunity to, to stay and rest for those symptoms to subside. Uh, and that there are... that. And the other important thing to think is to make sure that there's somebody there to check on you. Okay, that you're that you don't that you're not just isolated in a hotel room, yes, experiencing these symptoms and nobody's checking on you. You know, they can progress. Hmm. Uh, even overnight. Even overnight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think respecting the mountain, respecting the environment that you're in, I think with any extreme environment is pretty much paramount. Um and I suspect we probably see people going off half cocked. Yeah. And yeah, trying to do quick ascents, for instance, Kilimanjaro, becoming very unwell, as you've as you've mentioned there. Okay, um, so I think so. We've we've obviously talked about acute mountain sickness. Talked a little bit about the process of acclimatization. Um, how would we sort of assess a patient that came and, and spoke to us about this? So how do you assess the risk? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I would say that it's quite a useful resource on, on NAFNAC. Uh, website called Altitude Illness. And what they try to do is they try to divide the risk according to uh, the risk related to the area yeah. and the risk related to the individual. So when we say risk related to the area, we're looking at um, you know the, the, the places that they're going to travel, you know, in terms of the altitude. We're looking at the rate of ascent, whether there's any days for rest, yes. We're looking at the weather as well, weather factors as well. Uh, in terms of risk to travelers, had they had previous altitude illness? Because if they have, that's often a, uh, an important risk factor that they're going to have it again, okay? Or if, whether they've got any pre-existing lung or heart conditions, which can put them at risk because they have less less reserve. Um, I think this uh, discussion that we had about previous altitude sickness was very relevant uh, before I went off to, um, to Annapurna, to Nepal, because I'd had, I'd had these symptoms at lower altitudes but recovered quite rapidly and as i think we'll we'll probably come on to a little little bit later my experiences in in nepal were were quite different and a bit more severe and that's probably going to be our second part of our conversation but yet this discussion before probably put me into slightly increased risk of getting it again which of course is what 
Um, so, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It is a very tricky one, isn't it? So I would say that if you could classify patients as low risk, yes, yeah. this might be somebody who's had no prior history of altitude illness and they're uh, ascending to lesser, let's say, less than 2,800 meters, for example. Uh, individuals who are taking a couple of days to ascend, having rest days. And um, so that would kind of reassure me that this the, the, the itinerary is designed in a way to reduce the risk of altitude medicine. So taking that good history, and then yeah. when we're starting to move to that more moderate risk, what sort of things might be commonly yeah. spot? Yeah. So I suppose individuals with previous history of acute mental sickness, yes, that would put them at risk, especially if they've, if they've experienced that slightly low altitudes. Um, the literature usually says that, yeah, you'd experience AMS around 2,500 metres. But in my experience, I've had a patient who experienced it at 2,000 metres. So, yeah, and she had pre-existing asthma. So I don't, I think, I suspect. So I would say, you know, don't ignore the symptoms if, um, if just because it hasn't reached that critical 2,500 meters. So somebody with a prior history of uh, uh, AMS, somebody with um, uh, individuals who are ascending quite rapidly, let's say more than 500 meters a day, okay, and um, and their altitude above. When when they're uh, when they're sleeping, it's above three thousand meters. Mm. And probably for them at moderate risk. Yeah. Okay. So again, we were kind of combining the patient factors with the situation factors. Try and and probably something that getting used to that is probably one of the biggest learning curves when we're dealing with altitude medicine and wilderness adventure medicine as well, isn't it? I think so. Because I suppose for that individual, once you've determined which level of risk. The next question that they might ask is, okay, how do I mitigate that risk? Mm. Yes, to say I've booked a five-day trip now. I can't I can't change that my itinerary, so it's happening now. So you're thinking, okay, you you move yourself from a low risk to a relatively high risk now because you're you're you you're ascending quite quickly, you've got less climatization days. Um so then that's when we start to look at other measures, other pharmacological measures that might assist their acclimatization. Yeah. Okay. Um so well, let's explore that a little bit. And what, what sort of pharmacological things could we do to help with that? So, but the one that we often have heard about is dimoxyl or pazetazolamide. Although it's not licensed for this purpose, um, it has been shown to assist with acclimatization. It's probably one of the only tablets that has been shown to assist with acclimatization. So, and uh, but James, you've tried dimox, and so. There, there, there are some side effects. Yes. Describe your experience. Well, so the side effects that I that I had when I started taking it um, was, I think the main one was going for a wee very frequently, um, and certainly helping with the the altitude symptoms that I was having, but also having to get up several times a night to go to go for a wee. So evidently, I was needing to hydrate more, um, and and this does just pose some. It's a bit surprising. I didn't quite expect to have such a uh, such a profound impact on having to go for a week. Yeah. Um, I also, there maybe was a little bit of stomach upset that happened while I was there, but I must say I, those are the main symptoms that I experienced, the, the weaning one being the, the greatest one. But I understand that there's some quite frequent ones that people... People often, often one of the commonest ones is, is tingling as well. Yes. Tingling around the lips, tingling of the fingers, tingling of the feet. And it can be quite distressing to some patients as well. Um, you also find that you mentioned this because it's a sulfur-related tablet. Sometimes you can get this sort of gastric upset as well. Mm. And uh, I don't know whether 
people have experienced taking Dymox and then trying to drink some beer and notice it and then complaining that the beer is flat. Right. It's, uh, it, it's all finny drinks. It, it, you can't taste a, it taste a fizz. Yeah, absolutely. When I mean, you mention it, mentioned a beer as well. So sort of there's medications that we should take and some that we should, or we should consider taking yeah. and some that we should certainly avoid. And I understand that ethanol is a... This one, I think <laughs> the way to look at, look at alcohol in excess, I suppose, is that it can it can delay the acclimatization process. Yes, and like you said, there are obviously interactions with medications that you might, you might be taking. You might find that you're more likely to, uh, you're, in terms of judgments and... Uh, uh, yeah, you you might decide to to do things that you ordinarily wouldn't do. Be mm. in the influence. You have to be a little bit careful mm. there. Um, in terms of how it works, James, do you understand how how the tablet works at all? Not something I'm too afraid with. I understand that it's got some impact on on acid base. Exactly, that's right. Spot on. It. I mean, uh, yeah, certainly elucidating. Yeah. It? So it's a componic anhydrase inhibitor. What it does is it uh, it removes the the bicarbonate from your system. So, and as you probably realize, when you're in high altitude, we tend to breathe quite rapidly. We tend to blow off a lot of carbon dioxide. So our system becomes quite alkalotic. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Why are we breathing more quickly? Yes, because we're our almost body's trying to compensate for the l lack of oxygen molecules per breath, if that makes sense. What was that? Oxygen. oxygen, exactly. So eventually what will happen is you, you may find that as you start to acclimatize, the breathing rate starts to slow. You start to take more deeper breaths, but initially it's often faster, shallower breaths. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so there's a, there's a risk of going to respiratory alkalosis, mm -hmm. and that's where the diamox can help. Unfortunately, the downside is it makes you pee a bit more than it should. Sure. I mean, so obviously we, we might want to look at prescribing and that for a patient. What sort of the practicalities of, I suppose, prescribing and then taking it? Yeah. And what would it be telling? No, you? so it's, it's not available on FP10. Yeah. So it's not recommended on the, on the NHS. So you could write a private prescription for it and explain to the patient that it's off license. Mm -hmm. Yes. But there's some evidence that suggests that it does help with the clientization. Uh, in terms of strength, we'd normally say 125 milligrams twice a day. Yes. Uh, the, the advice usually is a day before you're about to ascend, take it. But my advice is to maybe take it a few days before, just so that you can make sure that you don't experience any adverse side effects. Yes. And like I said, sometimes it's quite hard to distinguish whether is it the tablet that's making you unwell or is it the altitude sickness or is it another factor like a, a, a gastric bug or traveler's diarrhea. So sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. Sometimes starting it a few days early helps. Yeah, sure. And then stop taking it once you've yeah. descended. Yeah, so once you start, so I would say once you reach your highest altitude and and you're about to descend, then stop taking. Make make your the once you're at a high altitude a day before you're about to descend. That's your last dose. That's what I need to say. Okay, oh, that's a really it's really helpful. I think that um, you know when I went went asking for this uh, at my local GP practice, there was a bit of a discussion, especially with people that are less used to this thinking okay well how, how how do i go about prescribing that so that's really useful advice um obviously we talked to cetazolamide there are other medications that that are used in this area of medicine which we're going to talk about in our second conversation um but for your sort of average traveler for your student that says right i'm up going up killy is there anything else that we might suggest them from a medication point of view it's uh, a good question um there's um there's there's a bit of debate about over-the-counter uh, medications, as you probably realise. Um, is it ginkgo biloba? Yes, that's the other one that uh, people often mention. 
again, the problem is the, the trial data is a little bit sort of like um, not so definitive. In some studies, it showed to have some impact, and others, it doesn't. So it does suggest that the actual dosage or the amount of active ingredient varies. So, uh, so I would say if I was going to take something, if I was going to take something, I'd, I'd probably err on the side of caution and take Dimox rather than Ginkgo biloba. But the, the, I suppose the important thing to remember is if your trip is organized in a sensible way and there's climatization days, you will probably not need to take anything. And maybe that's the advice that we would want to give as a GP. I want to reassure you that it sounds like you've got a sensible itinerary and I don't know, but I should make you aware of what the potential risks are. I think that's very sensible. And I think having spoken to a lot of people that have done Kilimanjaro and the awful time that the five-day people had and the quite nice time that the eight-day people had, I would be sort of suggesting, is there any way that you can extend this walk? In fact, um, and those extra coins actually probably worth it for making your dream come true yeah. and not getting really unwell along the way. Yes. Um, we talked a little bit before when we, when we were discussing this before. Um, so we've got obviously what Diamox, and you've mentioned y- y- Ginkgo there. Um, sort of a bit more broadly about trips to these areas. Um, what do you take beyond things like uh, um, traveller's diarrhea, antibiotics, and yeah. and suggesting that that sort of thing to patients? So, so good. Again, it's uh, I would say the most important thing to do is to make sure that they take an adequate amount of electrolytes. Mm. Yes, because um, like I said. Uh, Gas, uh, diarrhea illness, traveler's diarrhea is very common, a basic first aid kit, uh, paracetamol, ibuprofen, which is also quite useful for the early stages of acute mountain sickness if you want to take some simple pain relief. Uh, so a basic first aid kit mm-hmm. I would definitely take. And uh, I'd be reluctant to sort of, if if they didn't have any medical background to prescribe things for treatment, if, if for example, the acute mountain sickness was, was to sort of uh, move to the arena of, you know, high altitude cell redeem or pomidia. I think those are quite specialised areas. The danger is, as you probably realise, uh, when you're that unwell, self-medicating might be even more risky. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So so I think a sensible general advice, the electrolytes. I also took a life straw with me and some water, fu- yeah. water purification tablets because you, you, you can't always trust the water in the places you're going to. And definitely better safe than sorry and all kinds of things you don't want to pick up. Um, and we were discussing before about uh, antibiotic resistance and the traditional antibiotics that we might prescribe for traveller's diarrhoea, fluoroquinolones and similar. Actually, worldwide resistance coming becoming a real problem for that. So knowing exactly what to give people and what advice to do to take it is, yes, a full other discussion about it. Uh, traveler's diarrhea but there is actually some really good advice on the website you were mentioning yeah. about traveler's diarrhea exactly on nafnab website we'll uh, yeah we'll we'll link to below um brilliant um so i think so we, we obviously covered quite a lot there we covered about this initial consultation the the real importance about the the where when how high how quickly and then a little bit about the the who 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 are you and what what medical problems might impact on what we've talked about, and then also about the more practical steps that we can make some advice. Um, I think I think that's a, that's really useful information. Was there is there anything else that you might you might impart on us? I think that's probably a starting point, yeah. really, isn't it? That's for, if we were to have a discussion with a patient, that's probably the framework I would use at the moment to assess the risk in terms of the area, the risk to the individual, a bit of information about what altitude sicknesses and what to be aware of. Yeah. 
The other important thing that we did mention was about travel insurance as well. Yeah. Yeah, just to make sure, because there are certain uh, travel companies that are that insure above certain altitudes. So you don't assume that you've got uh, comprehensive travel insurance. If you're going, if you're going above 5,000 meters, you almost need more specialized insurance. And the issue then is is evacuation, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? And that's the other thing I often ask about to say, in the event that if you did fall ill, you know, where would the nearest medical facilities be? So it's worth asking about that. Or if there's a medic on the trip with them, yeah. yes. Or in the event that does your insurance cover the you know a helicopter or an emergency or, or a, a plane evacuation is mm-hmm. something up or not? Yeah, and particularly whether available in the local areas. I know that at least within the Himalayas, it was relatively straightforward to get a helicopter. Relatively, and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail in our next discussion. Um, but in, in I think in Bolivia, they were saying that actually trying to get a helicopter to that area where we were was very very challenging. And um, so it's I think worth really planning your trip isn't it i think that's the key here really is that just planning your trip and like i said the majority of the patients uh will be kind of reassured to say actually the itinerary is in a sensible way the organization that's supporting them has put appropriate safeguards in place that you know that the in a way you can probably wish them well yes by just in giving them empowering them with the knowledge but saying actually it's probably unlikely but things are going to go astray brilliant yeah prevention better things exactly. later, isn't it yeah well, thank you so much, uh, Rashbal. It was a really interesting discussion and, and lots of really useful nuggets uh, to take away from that. I really look forward to our next discussion um, that we're going to have for the next podcast. So tune in for that, where we're going to be talking about some of your experiences on these treks and expeditions and delving a little bit more into the, the, the medical aspects of some of these things and some of the ways that we can uh, that we can manage these. Again, this is very much more for the expedition medicine uh, aspect of this and delving into that world but really looking forward to that and that discussion great james thanks very much for inviting me thank you so much for coming <laughs>